So I don't know if you've noticed, but throughout this series on Pentecost and persecution, the Holy Spirit has been moving in very direct ways to spread the good news. First, it had, you know, the Holy Spirit obviously acted during the Pentecost festival when Peter preached to crowds that had gathered from all over the Roman Empire. And now those 3,000 new believers have carried the good news home with them after the week-long festival. Then last week, the angel of the Lord spoke directly to Philip to cause his path to intersect with that of a high-ranking official in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. The official had traveled to Jerusalem from the Horn of Africa, and now that Ethiopian eunuch has also returned home with the good news and the Holy Spirit in his heart. But all is not flowers and butterflies. The stoning of Stephen just after Pentecost unleashed a bitter persecution of the believers in Jerusalem. And chief among the enforcers is a very young man who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death. This young man is a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as his namesake, King Saul, the first king of Israel. Although his Hebrew name is Saul, his Hellenized Greek name is Paul, and he answers to both names. But here in the early part of the story, he is 100% traditional Jew, and at this point, he has no other context than that. So the writer calls him Saul. Saul is full of murderous intent towards these Jesus followers he sees as a danger to Judaism the people of the way, as they are called. Saul goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues up in Damascus in Syria, authorizing him to take these people as prisoners, men and women both, and drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial as heretics. So who in the world is this bloodthirsty guy? Where did he come from? As it turns out, he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is way north of Palestine in a province called Cilicia. And this means he's a Hellenistic Jew. Greek would likely be his native language, although he has certainly learned Hebrew. He was born a Roman citizen, which is a big deal. We don't know how Saul's parents obtained their Roman citizenship. His father could have been born a citizen, or he could have purchased his citizenship, or he could even have been a slave who received citizenship when he was freed. That that did happen. Um, but Saul himself, being born to a Roman citizen, was born a Roman citizen. As the son of a Pharisee, he is raised a Pharisee. Now, I personally think Saul's family is well off because they are able to move from Tarsus to Jerusalem, bringing Saul and his sister with them. There in Jerusalem, Saul studies under the famous Gamaliel. Yes, that Gamaliel, the one called Nasi or Prince by the Jewish people. This is the same eminent scholar who spoke up before the Sanhedrin and saved the lives of the apostles a little earlier in the story. Studying under Gamaliel is like going to an Ivy League college. Saul is on the road to success in Judaism. He is climbing the ladder. So as you might expect, Saul is the sort of guy who throws everything he's got into whatever he's doing. He's a very smart guy, and there's no one who is more scrupulous, more zealous for the traditions of the Jews than Saul. If he had stayed in Tarsus, a smart young man such as himself might have been educated in the Greek Hellenistic way. He might have studied the Hellenistic arts of rhetoric or public speaking. 
but not Saul. Saul's education was in Jerusalem, and it was focused on all things Jewish, all the things the Pharisees believed, the law of Moses, which is formed around the morality of the Ten Commandments, the law, which spells out God's blessing and provision for those who obey the commands, but also spells out terrible consequences for falling away from God. The law of Moses defines a pattern of worship that includes the tabernacle, which is God's dwelling place, and uh, pre-temple, and an elaborate sacrificial system which makes it possible for the people to understand that their sins are forgiven and that they are clean and acceptable to God. These are things all Jews know. But studying under the great Pharisee Gamaliel, Saul would also become an expert in the oral law. Things like how far you can walk on a Sabbath and what exactly constitutes, quote, work under the law. The oral law fills in the answers to the everyday questions about how to conform to the law. It is for this that the people go to the Pharisees for teaching and guidance. Saul is well on his way to becoming a leader among the Pharisees. A future in the Sanhedrin is undoubtedly on his mind. He is a rising star. So when these renegade Jews keep claiming that Jesus is the Messiah risen from the dead, there is no one more eager to stamp this heresy out than Saul. After the stoning of Stephen, the Jesus followers flee from the persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem. Many of them flee to Damascus, one of the main cities in Syria, which is the powerful Roman province just north of Palestine. Young Saul is not willing to let the men and women of the way slip out of his grasp so easily. Their poisonous ideas could spread. No, Saul obtains the authorization he needs, and he, along with several others, set out for Damascus. About noon, as they approach the city, a light as bright as lightning flashes all around Saul. Shaken by the unbearable brightness, Saul falls to the ground and hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, sir? The Greek is translated literally, who are you, Lord? But this was just a common way of speaking to someone with respect. It's like us saying, sir. Saul says, and who are you, sir? And the voice says, I am Jesus. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this little Greek idiom is so, so revealing. Apparently, Saul has been having second thoughts. Something about what he's doing has not been sitting well in his soul. The Holy Spirit has been disturbing him. No one could have known this except God. Jesus has spoken Saul's inmost turmoil out loud for everyone to hear. Saul is shaking terribly. He, he stammers, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, arise. This is the same word that is used for resurrection. Jesus says, arise, stand up. I have appointed you as a servant and as a witness, both to what you have seen today also what you will discern in the future. I will rescue you from your own people and also from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may grasp forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those made holy by believing in me. Go, enter the city, and you will be told what to do next. Well, 
<laughs> the other men traveling with Saul are standing there with their mouths hanging open. They didn't see the flashing, bright, overwhelming light. Uh, they saw Saul fall on the ground. They did hear sound, but they didn't understand any of the words. They can for sure tell that something terrible has happened to Saul because when Saul gets up off the ground, he is blind. They have to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. For three days, Saul cannot see and he neither eats nor drinks anything. While all this is happening, the Holy Spirit is on the move again. There's a believer right there in Damascus, a disciple named Ananias. The Lord calls to Ananias in a vision, saying, Go over to Straight Street and look for a man named Judas. A man from Tarsus is staying with him. His name is Saul, and he is praying. He has seen you in a vision and knows your name. He knows you will come. Lay your hands on him and restore his sight. Wow. Ananias is like, okay, uh, wait. A man named Saul from Tarsus? Yeah, I've heard about this guy and all the terrible things he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And now he's here on the authority of the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But Jesus says, Go anyway, Ananias. This man is my chosen vessel, the one who will carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and finally to the sons of Israel. He will suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer. And so Ananias leaves his home and goes to the house of Judas in Straight Street. Sure enough, of course, Saul is there. So Ananias lays his hands on him and says, Saul, brother, the Lord has sent me to you. Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so you may see again and so you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fall from, uh, falls from Saul's eyes and he can see again. Saul gets up and is baptized. And afterwards he eats and slowly regains his strength. When he is able, he goes down to Arabia, which is also called the Nabataean kingdom. So let me show you where that is. Here's Damascus in the north. Damascus is part of Syria, but its governor, the governor of Syria, is under the authority of King Eratus of Nabatea. The capital of the Nabatean kingdom is Petra here in the south. And you can see from all the tan coloring on the map that Arabia is an arid land. Saul travels from Damascus down to Arabia and stays some time there. It is in Arabia that he finds his preaching voice. In fact, he is eventually run out of the Nabataean kingdom and he returns to Damascus, where he meets other disciples and preaches in the synagogues, telling everyone that Jesus is the Son of God. The people are like, wait a minute, isn't this the guy who wreaked havoc on the believers in Jerusalem? I've heard he's in Damascus to arrest all the believers here and take them back to the chief priests. But Saul continues to preach powerfully, completely bewildering the Jews in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the, the Jews of Damascus aren't having any of it. Apparently, they raised such a ruckus that the governor of Damascus, under the authority of King Eratus of Nabatea, orders Saul arrested and has the city gates watched day and night. But the believers hear of the plan and lower Saul over the city wall in a basket, and he escapes with his life, fleeing home to Jerusalem. Now, at this point, 
there are two conflicting versions of what happens. Because the information about Saul's early ministry is scattered all over the place in little snippets throughout the New Testament, and because there are three verses in Acts that conflict with the rest of the versions, scholars have all sorts of different theories and timelines for Saul. How you understand his story and his timeline depends on which version you go with here and how you put the bits together. So I'm, I'm giving you a synthesis of the bits um, that I think is the way to go. And, and here's why. And in Acts 9, 26 through 29, there are three verses that say that Saul tries to meet with other believers, but they're scared of him and hide from him until Barnabas finally takes him under his wing and brings him to the apostles. After that, they're convinced of Saul's change of heart and Saul moves freely around Jerusalem preaching. So that's one version of what happens to him in Jerusalem. That, um, in that version, uh, him moving around, you know, the Jerusalem freely makes the Hellenistic Jews furious and they try to assassinate him. But believers save him by putting him on a ship to Tarsus. Problem is, this account of what happened in Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts does not fit with what Saul himself says letter in his later in his letter to the Galatians. So I prefer to go with what Saul says happens in Jerusalem. The way I've put the story together for you and the timelines I'll be giving you match up with Saul's version of the story. So Saul says that when he gets to Jerusalem, he stays with the apostle Peter for 15 days. And while he's there, he only meets James, the brother of Jesus, who along with Peter has become a leader of the believers in Jerusalem. Saul says Peter and James are the only believers he sees while he's staying with Peter. All this happens, Saul says, about three years after his conversion experience. So we're talking about 33 or 34. While in Jerusalem, Saul goes to the temple to pray. He falls into a trance and the Lord speaks to him urgently saying, go, hurry, get out of Jerusalem. These people will not receive your witness about me. Well, apparently the people the Lord is referring to are Jews who have become believers. Apparently, Saul is being shunned in some way. And Saul says, yeah, the believers know how I went from synagogue to synagogue, hunting, the, hunting them down, and, and how I even held the cloaks as Stephen was stoned to death for you. And, and the Lord says, go, I will send you to the Gentiles. And here is where the different versions of what happened to Saul in Jerusalem begin to kind of converge again. Acts says the, believe, the believers put him on a ship uh, to Tarsus. Saul's version has him leaving because he knows the believers will never listen to him. Acts has him sail directly to Tarsus. But Saul says, well, first he went to Syria and then Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is. Either way, he ends up in Tarsus. And the church back in Palestine enjoys a time of peace as the persecutions subside. The story now switches to the Apostle Peter's ministry back in Palestine. You'll remember Peter as the impetuous disciple. He's the one who dove into the water to swim to Jesus when he saw Jesus on the beach after his resurrection. Peter's the one who preached at Pentecost. Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, have emerged as the leaders of the community of believers in Jerusalem. Well, Peter travels all over the countryside preaching just as he had done with Jesus. And when he goes to visit the town of Lydda, he meets a man there named Aeneas. Aeneas has been lying on his mat for eight years, paralyzed. Peter says, Aeneas? Jesus, the Messiah, heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas gets up. While everyone watching, everyone from Lydda and Sharon, turn to the Lord. All of them turn to the Lord. And you can imagine 
the rejoicing and praising of God that happens when people see something like this happen to somebody they know. There's there's also a community of believers in Joppa, not far away, um, and word of what Peter has done spreads to them. There's a disciple in Joppa whose name is Tabitha in Aramaic. Her Greek name is Dorcas. This, by the way, is a hugely significant passage. For one thing, it identifies a female by name. So she must be someone of importance. And number two, it identifies her specifically as a disciple, not just one of the believers. This disciple is in leadership in her community of believers, full of good works and always giving alms. They love her, but Dorcas has fallen ill and has died. The other disciples in Joppa, hearing that Peter is in a nearby town, send two men to Peter to beg him to come to Joppa. Peter agrees to go, and when he arrives, they take him to the upper room where Dorcas's body is lying. The widows in the room with Dorcas's body are weeping. They show Peter the tunics and the cloaks that Dorcas has so generously made. This little community is heartbroken that she has gone. Peter sends everyone out of the room and kneeling by the bed, he prays. Then he turns to the body and says, Tabitha, get up. And she opens her eyes, sees Peter and sits up. Peter takes her by the hand and helps her out of the bed. Then he calls everyone back in and shows them that she is alive. Of course, word spreads like wildfire and many people believe in the Lord. And Peter stays in Joppa for quite some time, living with a man named Simon, who is a tanner. We'll hear more from Peter later, but let's stop here for today and turn our attention back to Saul. As you probably know, Saul later becomes known as the Apostle Paul, and he writes the bulk of the theology that is preserved in the New Testament. We need to take a moment to look at how his theology is grounded. What is the soil in which these seeds of the good news has fallen? What is his frame of reference and how might that affect his understanding of Jesus and salvation? If any of the questions are confusing, don't get bogged down. Just go to the next one. The questions all work together. So it doesn't matter which one you pick. You should end up at the same place. So discuss whichever questions make more sense to you. All right. Looks like everybody's back. Well, I hope that was interesting. Yeah, we have more questions than answers. <laughs> what did you come up with? What what did you think? I mean, in general, what do you think is Paul, where is Paul going to be coming from when he hears the good news? What what was the good news that he heard? Can I shoot? Yeah. Yeah. So I told I told our group that it's been a while, but I was in a Sunday school class that did a deep dive on Saul Paul. And I there were a couple big takeaways. But I remembered, like you said, that they said he was very educated. And even after God spoke to him, he was arrogant about it. And that's kind of, and that was kind of a difference. And I'm raised because he was jealous of David because he figured out that David was anointed. And so he had some jealousy issues. Yet he got it. Interesting. Very I've awkward. never heard that take on it, but that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what we were taught. Could be wrong, right? So <laughs> I think that was conjecture, but okay. Yeah. Okay. But and I shared a quick story about my daughter's confirmation because I was raised in Lutheran church and went to Lutheran confirmation. My oldest daughter did, except the guy that taught it was a jerk. Oh, he was man. a jerk. And, and yes, I took him to task with our district. But so at the end of confirmation, all the parents are called together and he speaks about each of the kids. And then we make this little banner. So he went first with my daughter. And as some of you know, my daughter has had learning difficulties and he made a comment to the to the point of that he hopes 
and knows that God knows what Sarah learned because he isn't sure. Oh, so oh then, my yeah, and my daughter's sitting there. Okay. So then he talks about a really intelligent guy in the class, you know, like genius. And he said, what he said about him was the problem with really intelligent people is that it's easy for them to talk their way out of faith because it's not, you know, a proven tangible thing. And so I kind of felt the same for Saul um, in that he was very educated. But blinding him for three days kind of served. <laughs> and we had talks, I'll let people share the points up, but we had lots of reasons about what the blinding did. Kind of served as, as his 180 because he had to be put in a completely different space than his head and what he knew to receive the to receive the, the gospel. We we had sort of a a prequel to that um that uh, we we agreed with that but we thought that Saul's participation in the stoning of Stephen may have laid the groundwork mm. uh, to some extent that that may have I mean yes Saul was an incredibly intelligent uh, educated person and as young people are want to do he probably had some doubts about these various rules and doctrines and all of that and participating in a stoning like that could well have been a traumatic event in Saul's life and sort of sort of maybe intensified his doubts as to whether what he and the other Jews were doing was correct and and maybe some doubts about whether what the believers were doing was really wrong and so that left him open then when he has this encounter with Jesus to, for it to be a total revelation, a total, um, tra not traumatic, but a, an epiphany uh, that, that uh, completely changed his, his point of view. That is such an interesting point, Woody, um, because, because if you remember Steve, what Stephen spoke at his stoning was a history of Israel. Stephen spoke mm -hmm. from the Hebrew Bible. He was speaking Saul's language as he died on behalf of Jesus. You mm -hmm. know, I, I kind of look at it from a different perspective in that if he, since Saul was a Pharisee, he believed strongly in the law, the eye for an eye, the put out oppression, you know, don't, don't buck the system or we're going to deal with you. <laughs> he, he may have felt justified in that. And I could see a doubt coming later, but I see that being strong emotions that Stephen needed to die <laughs> to put this absurdance out you know this changing that's going on in the jewish faith this has to be eradicated and we have to take the leaders out and make examples of them and so i think he might have been in a place of this is very important that we do this and justified mm -hmm until he had his encounter with the Lord. Well, what, what I would say to that is, it seems to me like maybe he felt that way before right. he watched Stephen being stoned to death. Yes. But then it's like the, the participation in the experience somehow changed him. Julia, it's exactly what you were talking about before class. I was just about to say that, Woody. I am very much an anti-gun person, and it's because I have personally known two people shot with their own guns, one who died and one who survived. And ironically, they caught the person that killed my friend when I was 19 years old, 
And years later, he got caught on an unrelated thing and he confessed and they executed him. And it was on the morning news and I heard it. And when I heard that, it ripped open all the pain yeah. of losing my friend. And what happened to that was I had been pro-capital punishment in my life. until. Uh -oh. nope. You're frozen. Hopefully she'll come back. Oh, yeah. no. Well, the one thing I, we talked about. Yeah, well, I was going to say. Day, I okay. want to over again. Julia, and you it froze. didn't change anything. Yeah. Julia, you froze there just when you were about to say Oh, it. no. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Well, so basically, the short of it is I went through a transformation like that just knowing that somebody was being executed because of what they did to my friend. It didn't bring my friend back. Right. It took another life. And it changed me completely going forward. And like I told Gail, I think it made me a better person. Because it didn't solve societal woes. No. And it didn't bring my friend back. It did nothing positive for us. It just ripped the pain open again. Yeah. And so I could see Saul being primed in that moment, like you say, you connected those dots to me today. Yeah. Well, we know that Saul was not a kind man regarding the stoning and that he asked to go round up Jews. He asked to go do this, right? Wow. You know, Gail, am I correct? In yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, okay. In the, in the text. Yeah. So for Jesus to have spoken to him and him being blind, I mean, that's that's a huge change. And I often wonder if maybe the point of the stoning is to teach us that Saul wasn't Paul or, you know, what we assume is, I don't know. And I think that leads into what we were talking about. Yes. If the blindness was caused so it took away that it took away one of his senses. So he had to depend on his other senses mm. and he had to depend on other people, which probably for somebody. He would have hated that, right? He would have hated yes. that. Yeah. Yes. And so he was forced to sit there and listen to what these people were saying. Going through the trauma again of Stephen stoning would have made the connection in his brain that he had to think about some of this stuff that he didn't really think he needed to. And it made it, that made a Jesus real to him. Mm -hmm. And Julie really made cool. some really good points about Ooh. him being blinded, taking away his visual learning and making him an auditory learner for a period of time when he had all the old testament in his brain at his mm -hmm. disposal but now he is not talking to jesus he is he is in the midst of people who were able to listen to jesus and they're playing yes. a game of telephone and he is now starting to tease out the message and put it together with the old testament that he knows and the things that Jesus talked about relating back to the Old Testament. And he's hearing these things from the people around him. And he's developing his yeah. message that's inspired by God. Yeah. Uh, Shirley has her hand up. Let, Shirley, what do you have to say? Oh, go ahead. Hey, I was just, um, one of the phrases that we used is him seeing... Stephen, Stephen Stone prepared his heart to meet Jesus. And a lot of people don't think that Paul is a legitimate apostle because he never met the living Jesus. Um, In his day, they did not think that. He got caught but a lot of flack on that. Did, mm -hmm. But he did actually meet the living, resurrected Jesus this day. And um, having seen Stephen stoned, um, one of the things that we were talking about, like Woody was talking about him being a young man and maybe questioning some of the teachings that he had grown up with, that seeing Stephen stoned, you know, maybe his 
his mind was like, wait a minute, what are we doing? And yet he continued on to Jerusalem to persecute the Christians. You mean Damascus, yeah. Uh-huh. Or Damascus, I mean, I'm sorry, to uh-huh. Damascus. And then when Jesus met him, what Jesus said to him is, Why are you continuing to kick against the thorns? And I think that to what he was saying there was the internal thorns, the internal um confusion or questioning that Paul was having. Um, because after seeing Stephen stoned, he was like, this isn't right. I don't, I'm not sure what we're doing is right, but yet he continued to do it. And I think that's where Jesus was saying, why are you continuing this path when you saw this and you have questions here? I, I'm here to give you answers. Go here. They'll, they'll answer these questions for you. As Saul was ready to listen to those answers until he saw Stephen. I think it was Shirley that said in our group that Saul was doing, uh, I guess both before and to some extent after Stephen stoning, that Saul was doing what he thought other people wanted him to do. Right, yet, he was climbing that ladder. How often do we get sucked into and those yet, expectations? And yet he had to be carrying around some doubts. And I think you even alluded to that earlier before uh, before the uh, group time. Something about Paul that Saul was having some doubts or second thoughts. Well, Jesus said to him, why, you know, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which is a Greek idiom that continued like for 400 years, they were still using it, um, where where it, it, it refers to oxen who are like, eh, when, you know, their their handler will poke them to get them to go the way they, they, they're supposed to go and the oxen will try to shove them off. So it's, but, you know, kick back. But that didn't happen until Jesus appeared to him, which is after the stoning, correct? It, exactly. It happened when so, Jesus said that to him. I, I agree with, I, I have always kind of taken it, the, the new swipe, the new take we're taking that maybe the stoning has opened his eyes. Cause I had always thought that he was a powerful man and pretty prideful. And that stoning was like his righteousness. He's wrong. He deserves to die. And in order for him to get that out of his head, he had to be blinded to see a new light. Yeah. You know. Can I take us down a different rabbit trail? Absolutely. Sure. Okay, it's one that we discussed in the very beginning of our group when we're talking about the implications of the statement by Paul, Saul, in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. It says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, good news, I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. When we talked about that, and we talked about the bright light and the message, I got a little lost in the Trinity there. (laughs) I wasn't sure, is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it the Holy Spirit? He's saying it's Jesus. But who exactly is in this light? And, well, does it matter? But it is interesting because it brings up your whole Trinity issue. Well, let me just interject something before we discuss this. And that is um, that scripturally speaking, it is during these stories of Paul that the phrase spirit of Jesus is introduced. Interesting. And it is used interchangeably with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. Oh. So um, that's how Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul Paul's um understanding of the Trinity um involved God, Holy Spirit and the spirit of Jesus. 
and we are going to run into him saying the spirit of Jesus told me this, or this happened by the spirit of Jesus. And he also talks about the Holy Spirit and about God. And so this is, you know, this is right where we start to get this whole Trinitarian understanding so that Paul is going to articulate. All right. But here are the seeds. But in terms of this revelation from Jesus Christ, I mean, it was Jesus that he encountered. And, Absolutely. And Jesus, Jesus identified himself as Jesus. I'm he didn't Jesus. Say this, he didn't say this is God. Yes. He didn't say this is the Holy Spirit. He That's said, right. I'm Jesus. It's, and it's Jesus you're persecuting. So and in that moment, now we're talking side of the road, face mm-hmm. on the ground. He is laid out. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing, how, how long do you think this took? Matter of minutes? Right? It's a revelation. There's a quick conversation. He's blind. All right. What was the good news that Paul received in that moment? What was the good news? That's where our questions came in. I think it was one of the things that we, um, that that I came up with, which was kind of like a a tongue-in-cheek, but still... He was a Pharisee. They believed in the resurrection, right? Yep. No. Reincarnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's Pharisees do. Yeah. That, um, he met Jesus who had died, which means he kind of probably had a moment like, yes, we were right. There is a resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) But also, but what was the actual good news that Paul understood in the dirt on the road to Damascus. It can't have been a whole lot. No, I think it was a Jesus was who he said he was. Yeah, Yeah. there you go, Renee, that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. Duh. Got to hit him with a baseball bat, but he gets it. But that is the good news to Mm -hmm. Paul. That's all there was time for. And Jesus said, now I want to take, I want you to take this and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles and the Kings and the blah, you know, everybody in the world with this good news. But the good news to him is that, oh, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been expecting. Yeah. Now this is really important point. If this is how Paul understands the good news when he explains the good news to other people, what is going to be his reference point and what is he going to draw on for his arguments? The people he's surrounded and listening to? No? Mm, I don't think Mm. so. What would Paul? A very educated guy. Pardon? Very educated guy. Yeah, and what was he educated in? Jewish. The Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible. Bible. Yeah. He's going to go back and pick up all those old prophecies about the Messiah and start connecting them to Jesus. Okay? He's going to go back and say, oh, Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, the Messiah is supposed to come and save Israel from her enemies. So Jesus is saving Israel from her enemies. But Jesus, wait a minute. So he's going to start trying to put these pieces together. And as he does that, he's looking at these, these, there's like three big points Um maybe four, maybe four big points in the Hebrew Bible about what the Messiah is going to accomplish. The Messiah is going to rescue Israel from her enemies, the like Roman enemies, like oppressors, okay? The Messiah is going to usher in a reign of peace in which Israel is going to be on top and God is going to be physically present with Israel in Jerusalem. And... Um, that, that the blessing that Israel is going to be for the world is going to be for the whole world, but it's hierarchical, you see? 
in the mm -hmm. Hebrew Bible. It's a very hierarchical view that was written down by the Israelites through their prophets, the way they understood this. Um, and he's going to understand that Israel's place in the cosmos, according to the Hebrew Bible, is that Israel, out of all the people, is God's own inheritance. Chosen king. Okay, is that so the good news. Pardon? Is that the good news? So the good news to Paul or to Saul is that Jesus is the Messiah and has come to accomplish all these things. Mm -hmm. Okay. For, he says, for Israel. For Israel. And that, that Israel, but Israel is not supposed, when I say hierarchical, Israel is not supposed to, well, they are supposed to lord it over everybody, but it's more, it's more of a, they are, if you read the whole, it holistically in the Hebrew Bible, they are just particularly precious. Like if you think of the whole eye, mm -hmm. they are the people. Okay. It's, it's like they are, the, the all of the earth belongs to the Lord, but but the Lord has has chosen Israel as the part that he cherishes and holds as his inheritance. All right. Loves everybody. But it's like the difference between my family and the whole family. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm mom. So right. so this is just imagery that the Hebrews use. But this is where Paul is coming from. Yeah. yeah. This is his mindset here. Now, I want you to take that mindset and think back, set it aside, and think about what did Jesus teach the good news was? When Jesus was here, what did Jesus teach? What did he do all the time? That the whole world, every person is precious. Right. And God's child. He did. Um, and salvation. He, but 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 what what did salvation mean for when Jesus came and said this is the good news? What was the good news that Jesus spoke? Wouldn't it love God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself? Well, that's what he said when he said this is how you know you're on the right path. But Jesus' overwhelming message over and over God loves and you. over. Pardon? God loves you. Is that God has come to heal you, to fill you, to make you whole, to to uh, preserve you, to rescue you from uh, your sin, you know, from the, the, the way that sin leads to death. So this is a fact. We all know this. If we've had teenagers, we know this. And and um, <laughs> and uh, and Jesus said, God wants you to be whole and well. I'm going to ch share my screen for just a quick second. Bible Hub. All right. Um, I'm going to hide a little bit of stuff here so that, so that I can see what y'all are seeing. Um, so if, if I, I love using Bible Hub and um, I can go there and let's go to Matthew 1, 21. So this is the big verse about, you know, G prophesying Jesus' birth. Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Yeshua, which means God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Now, if I go to the Greek and take a look at that, Matthew one twenty one. And here's the English kind of all down in a column. She will bear a son and you will call the name of him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. And we look over here and we can see the sotse, and it comes from sotso, which means to save. But look at what save means. Save is meant to mean and is used in the common language to mean to heal, preserve, rescue. It means making whole when it's used in the Bible. It's used to mean to bring safely, to be cured, to get well, to be made well, to be preserved, to recover, to restore, 
that's what to save means. Um, so, so I'm going to stop my share if I can figure out how to do that. Well, while you're doing that, I wanted to clarify. I was confused and messed up there because I guess I was thinking Pharisee reincarnation, but I remember now that Sadducee is the Sadducees you were thinking of. Yeah. 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 And his parents were Jewish. So he knows that Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Okay. He does. And and he is trained in the Hebrew Bible. But my point is that Jesus' whole life was spent walking around the countryside healing people. If you remember anything about Jesus, it's that what Jesus did was say, this is the good news. Be healed. Be made whole. Be who you were meant to be. Who you were created to be. Jesus did not go around saying, I have come to save you from hell. He didn't do that. He was, he, he did believe like was normal in his culture in heaven and hell. Um, and he talked about, he gave examples from, from common stories about that. But the thrust of his good news was you can be made well and whole, and then you should spread that to everybody else. And of course he didn't, he also didn't, uh, didn't come to say, uh, I've, I've come to save you or to save Israel from the Romans. That's right. He never said that, right? So I guess this answers question four. Which is, given this background, how is Paul likely to understand salvation? And what have we learned salvation means? It means the healing. We learned that, but that's, Paul wasn't around for Jesus to tell him that. I think that's what we were talking about, where Paul didn't learn it from Jesus, but when he was blinded, he had to listen. And hear the people around him with that had been taught by Jesus. I don't know that he that, that that he learned from people who who knew Jesus in life. Because right. remember that he is up in Damascus in Syria. So he's learning from people who have perhaps been baptized at Pentecost and heard. Peter preaches his message and then they've carried the message forward that Jesus is the Messiah and that, and that's what they believe. They don't necessarily know what Jesus taught up there in Damascus. And that's why it becomes important which path you believe, which path you choose when it's choose your own adventure about what happened to Paul in in Jerusalem was whether he just went and met with Peter and James for about a two-week period where he would have heard about what Jesus was like and what what Jesus said. But it's this little window. It's this little tiny window. Um, Or whether you think he spent a lot more time there with a whole lot of the believers and he would have, you know, heard more from more perspectives. Um, But in any case... Judging from how he articulates his understanding of the good news later in his letters, I think it's very likely that he did not perceive the good news as being the kingdom of God is here in tangible ways where we're helping each other and healing, everybody's being healed as much as he knows that, he does acknowledge that. But as much as, guys, the important thing is that you know that Jesus is the Messiah and you be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Surely. Well, we had a question, um, and that ties in with what you were just saying and what we said a little bit ago. Um, Those of us who have Jewish friends, our Jewish friends do not believe in an afterlife. The ones that we know believe once you're dead, you're dead. You're dead, you're dead. That's how the Hebrew Bible but, teaches it. But as a Pharisee who believed in the resurrection, what did they believe that was a resurrection to? Judgment, sorting between heaven and hell. They believe about heaven. I mean, they don't believe in an afterlife. 
That's what we were confused about. No, but the Pharisees believe in an afterlife and they are vehement. And the Sadducees, who were another big, important sect of Jews, vehemently believed that that's not what the Hebrew Bible taught. And they were constantly at loggerheads with each other. Okay. So our Jewish friends would have come down from the Sadducees rather than from the Pharisees. That's how they see, that's how they perceive the the Hebrew Bible. Now, you know, what their theological stream is, I have no idea. But typically, um, you will have some people who believe in a resurrection and others who don't, who believe dead is dead based on the Hebrew Bible. Why would it have been of such critical importance to Paul that uh, that Jesus was the Messiah? And what, what would that have meant to him? Good question. Good question. What do y'all think? He was looking you. <laughs> I think I, I part of thinking. it would be that he would not, he would not have thought of Jesus was coming to save, as in what the Greek says, was the most important part mm-hmm. of the Messiah. I think he still probably thought that, you know, one day soon Jesus is going to come back and, and take names and kick butt and we're going to be on top of the world again. There you go. He was expecting Jesus to come back any second, like everybody else in this story mm-hmm. is expecting. Mm-hmm. So and people still do. Yes. And he's yes. like urgently saying, you need to be on the right side when that happens. Right. So it was important to Paul that Jesus was the Messiah in order that, in order for him to believe that Jesus was going to come back and save Israel from the Romans. Yeah. From, and everybody else. Yeah, save, else. save them from their oppressors. Absolutely. It was important. Um, and he did see things beyond like the physical realm. He saw a spiritual parallel in all of this. And he's going to be end up talking about that spiritual parallel and how there's forces of evil and forces of good at work in the world. And uh, he's going to start fleshing out as he thinks this through. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to start throwing spaghetti at the walls <laughs> and we're going to read some of that spaghetti and kind of see how it evolves over time. And we're going to see what his initial concerns were. And then we're going to see how that that um, blooms and, and how he has some ideas. He's like, oh, wow, there's like there's this big parallel to the tabernacle and the law and how that parallels into what Jesus is doing. And I mean, he has just, he's, his mind goes a thousand directions and he writes it all down and we got all of it. Um, yeah. That's what I was going to say is we were kind of taught that Paul Saul, Paul Saul is important to us because he's an all in kind of guy and a leader and that personality went with him on the 180 and yeah, all the letters and the convictions and founding a church and yeah, I kind there of there are some that. among us that take um, Paul to task though for his misogyny. Who did? Just some. I'm not going to mention any names unless they want to. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure he's as much of a misogynist as he gets made out to be, and we're going to talk about that when we get to those places. I was going to say something, I think it was Joe said something way back when, makes me think Saul and Saul, Paul and David are both very similar. They both go all in, loving God. David falls short repeatedly and keeps trying. And Paul is like just screaming for perfection the (laughs) whole time. How can I get this to be better, better? And how can I be better? How can I become perfect? With with Paul, it's always a goal. There's a, a thing to be achieved. That's like Joe said, he took that hard wiring in his personality with him into ministry. Yeah. 
And we're going to see him say these words. And, and, and so the whole idea, we're going to stop here, but the whole idea of these questions was so that you all understood where Paul is coming from when he writes the words he writes so that we don't confuse the gift wrapping with the gift. Nice. Thank All you. Right. But he but he evolves so much he does. over time. He does. So where, where he was coming from at the beginning may be vastly different than where he ended up coming. Like from. us, right? I was just going to say, that's good news for us. <laughs> Thank goodness. Exactly. You've got you to take that into consideration. Exactly. Right. And which is some part of the fun of doing this chronologically, because then we can maybe we can start to see how things evolve and where, where they go.